Good morning. All right, who are my readers in the room? People who like reading. Okay. Who are my non-readers in the room? People, that's pretty evenly matched here in the third service. I like totally shame three people in the second service who are the only non-readers. So, so it's a it's a welcome place. I don't want to shame anybody. Um, I was not a reader uh, for the large uh, first 25 years of my life, I guess. And uh, the Lord flipped the switch in my mid 20s, and I, I not only became a reader, but I, it was like voracious. Like I couldn't get enough. And there's this thing that happens when you start buying books. And you just never stop buying books. And so it's a beautiful, glorious, wonderful thing. And, uh, and so you end up with kind of a library. And a couple years ago, I packed up my library. I was moving from the office I'd been in. So my books have been in boxes for like a few years. We just got some offices as a church. And I got to unpack my books. Um, let me tell you, it was like being reacquainted with old friends. It was a beautiful thing. I don't want to overstate it, but it was awesome, okay? So... Uh, but I, I realized that, like, I had, there were these prevailing thoughts that were connected to each of these books that I hadn't thought of since I looked at the book last time. But the, immediately I'd spent time with the author. I'd spent time in the book. So the first one was Corrie Ten Boom about her time in the concentration camps, re receiving horrible injustice from the Germans. And, uh, and I'm, I look at the book and I just say, the Germans are among the most to be pitied. That was what she said. It was like this prevailing thought that was, boom, the Germans are among the most to be pitied. Then I see Tim Keller's book on preaching. Preaching verse by verse allows God to set the agenda for your church. Boom, life-changing, transformative. Go over here, David Allen book, Getting Things Done, Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. I bought the book because I thought stress-free productivity wasn't possible, so I wanted to understand what they were talking about. I look at that book, and it's like, if it takes less than two minutes, do it. If it doesn't, you either put it on your schedule or put it on someone else's schedule. I don't do that naturally. That was a game changer for me. When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch, if you need people's approval, you won't be able to love them the way that God calls you to. Jeremiah Burroughs, 1600s, rare jewel of Christian contentment. Your voice, your soul has a voice that only God can hear, and too often it is vexing, fretting, and discontented. Those prevailing thoughts on each of the books were just right there under the surface. Like I saw them, I had spent time there, and they were right there. It made me think about Hebrews. And I think for the, you know, our time that we've had in Hebrews, and we're continuing it this morning, my prevailing thought in Hebrews, for the rest of my life, when I see the book of Hebrews, when we turn to it, Jesus is better over and over and over again. You might have something different that comes to mind. Write it down. Don't forget it. But Jesus is better. This morning, again, we're going to reiterate and further establish through the text how and to what extent Jesus is better. So you guys pray with me as we do that. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to come before you and spend time in the word. Uh, our prayer this morning is for wisdom, that you would ready our hearts and our minds to receive from you what we're supposed to hear this morning. We're thankful for the access that we have to you in Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Our first point this morning is that Jesus' death brings eternal inheritance. Jesus' death brings an eternal inheritance. We see it in verses 15 through 17. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes place only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So we have this will that's going to help us understand the new covenant. Um, but first we have to ask a question. Is any of my Team Howard kiddos in here, fifth and sixth graders? Raise your hand. All right. When we see a therefore, what's the question we ask? Say it out loud. What's the therefore, therefore? It's easy to remember. When you see a therefore, it's there for some reason, and you just simply ask, what's it there for, when you're looking at the therefore? Does everybody remember it now? Good. So this starts with a what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. We have to look at the previous verses. So consider Pastor Shu's sermon last week. We could say it like this. Because the old covenant was limited in its ability to give us full access to God, because the old covenant was ineffective in meeting our biggest need. Because we have knowledge of past sins, because we have knowledge of our sinful nature, and because we have ongoing contact with evil in the world, and because of the old covenant's inability to purify our conscience, and because Jesus entered and, and did all of those things completely, therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. That's, that's sort of how we get our footing this morning in the text. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. So first, as we're talking about the new covenant, I want to go back to Jeremiah 31, 31, which says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of David. So think of it this way, that those who were in the, the old covenant didn't at first see it as the old covenant. They were just in the covenant of God. And then they hear from the Lord, behold, the days are coming in which I will make a new covenant with my people. So even those in the old covenant at some point kind of realized one day this will be the old covenant. And what I want us to see this morning is that in that moment, this anticipation starts. There's an anticipation for a new covenant. There's an anticipation for something that's better. There's an anticipation for something that's more robust, more full, more complete, that, that is not lacking in all the ways that this one is lacking. And so those who were in the old covenant, by God's words here, reckoned in that moment that one day what they were doing would be old and there's something new. So there's this anticipation. Now, to understand the new covenant, there's two things that the, the Lord uses these, in these verses. All scriptures breathed out by God. I know that there was an author for the book of Hebrews. All scriptures breathed out by God. So God breathed it out through an author, and here he's using two things to help us understand the new covenant. And the first thing is a last will and testament. It said, um, for where uh, a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death. So he's using something that was familiar to the hearers to help them understand him and his new covenant more. And he chose a last will and testament. So just to make sure everybody is on the same page, kids, it's probably most of you don't have a last will and testament. It's usually the older adults that have last wills and testaments. And what that is is when someone passes, when someone dies, their last will and testament will be read. So generally a family, maybe some friends gather to hear that read. I want this to go to this person. I leave this amount to this person. I leave this item to this person. I leave this entity to this person. And so it's this moment where you're just sitting and you're listening and you're hearing and you're receiving the last will and testament of the person who passed. And God wants to use this as a, as a tool to help us understand 
the new covenant. So why would God utilize a will to help us understand the new covenant that we have in Jesus? And I think there's at least three reasons. First, very simple. In the same way that a will does not take effect until the person it refers to has died, so the new covenant doesn't take effect until the person it's referring to has died. And Jesus' death is the moment that the new covenant is put into place. It's an inauguration. And so, very simple, it's in the moment of Jesus' death that the new covenant takes effect. So somehow that's going to help us understand the new covenant of God. It was, it was only in the moment of Jesus' death. There was something about Jesus' blood that was different. Second is this, very, very important. He uses a will to help us understand the new covenant because it's not negotiable. This is where churches, this is where cultures, this is where individuals who want to hold on to something that's in their life that they shouldn't be holding on to get it wrong so often. We start negotiating things that were never meant to be negotiated. This is a last will and testament of God. The new covenant comes into place when Jesus dies and it is final. It is not negotiable. There's no other way for God's will to be fulfilled than through the blood of Jesus. There's no other way for one to be welcomed into forgiveness than through the blood of Jesus. We don't get to rework the terms of the new covenant. Imagine for a moment, you're sitting at a family member's last will and testament, and they begin to say who gets what. And someone raises their hand and says, I want more. We call that inappropriate, right? <laughs> That's not what people do in situations like that. I actually want more. Actually, uh, that what they got, I want that. Actually, I don't want this. I actually, and you start renegotiating the terms of a last will and testament, you'd probably politely be asked to leave. And you might forfeit whatever there was. When we try to make Jesus say something that he didn't say, or we try to make Jesus not say something that he did say, or we try to make God's designs and purposes and wills fit more what we want them to say, we are negotiating the new covenant of Jesus that was never meant to be negotiated. We fall into this over and over again. When you try to sort of rationalize through that sin that you're struggling with, you're negotiating something that was never meant to be negotiated. When you hear talk, people talk about, I mean, right now it's with gender, with marriage, I'll, I'll say it all, like, like, we're renegotiating things that are non-negotiable. It's not ours to negotiate. Do you know what people do when they're at a last will and testament? They sit and they listen. And they receive. They're not there to get something they earned. It was earned for them, not by them. I inherited my, my, great, my grandmother's baby grand player piano a few years ago. It actually has the three and a half inch floppy disks that you put in it, and uh, and there's a lot of Christmas ones. And so around Christmas time, man, we keep that thing going around the clock. It reminds me of Christmases with my family and my grandparents' house. It's the sweetest thing. I, I inherited that. I didn't earn it. I didn't do good work so that I could one day have that. I, I received it because that was that was her wishes. It was remarkable. It's it's an incredible gift. We don't sit at a last will and testament and try to negotiate the terms of it. What God has given you in Jesus isn't lacking in any way. It doesn't need to be improved upon in any way. 
There's no terms that need to be renegotiated. It is full, it is complete, and it is perfect. And consider the context here. This letter was written to Jewish Christians. The letter of Hebrews written to this early church, there were, there were Gentiles, no doubt, but there were, there were a lot of Jewish Christians. And so what you have is these people who have a Jewish heritage. You have people who are, who are Jews, they're, they're people of Israel, and they have a way that they do life because it's the way their dad did it, and the way their granddaddy did it, and the way that their great-granddaddy did it, and they just happen to be the people alive when, G, when Jesus came changed everything, and they're the ones who have this heritage of old covenant, but they have a future of new covenant. Can you imagine with me for a minute how confusing that might have been and how hard that might have been? Imagine I said, hey, this has been your way of life, your whole life. Starting today, it changes. So it's a little startling. It feels almost abrupt, but that's the audience in this letter. So before we ever ask, what does this mean for us? We have to ask, what does it mean? What does it mean to the people it was written to? What does it mean in its original context? We know that from the rest of the letter that there's an inclination in these early converts to hold on to facets and rituals of the Mosaic law. Um, the author is calling them out of it, but there's a tendency to want to hold on to it. Usually it would, it would, it would manifest itself in the way of like, like it would, they would say, yes, yes, we believe in Jesus, but we're still going to do circumcision. So it would be Jesus plus something. Or we believe in Jesus, but we're still going to do these the ritual cleansing and washings, and so it'd be Jesus plus something. Or we believe in Jesus, but we're still going to tend to the food in this particular way and the offering in this particular way, and it's Jesus plus something. And that's not what they were being called to. When you were called out of darkness and into light, God wasn't saying, hey, now that you have Jesus, I want you to figure out how to take your new life and just kind of figure out how to intermingle it into the darkness you've been living in up until this point. He's calling you out of that darkness. And that's what he's doing with his people here. He's calling them into something completely new. Out of darkness into light. He's calling them out of the old covenant and into the new. And he's ultimately calling them to lean into God through Jesus by embracing the good news of the gospel. And he's using a last will and testament to help them understand what that means. The third thing, so first we got that it doesn't, the new covenant comes into play upon Jesus' death. The second thing is that it's not negotiable, it's final. And the third thing is that it explains an inheritance that's unlike any other inheritance. In this case, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. No one's ever gotten one of those before. The eternal inheritance is unlike any other inheritance in that it can't be stolen by thieves it can't be destroyed by moth and rust. It can't be taxed to death by the government. It can't, like, it's untouchable. It is final, and this eternal inheritance goes on for forever. So in seeing this as God's last will and testament, there's this firmness to it. It's just like it's solid. It is not negotiable. You receive it. You can't earn it. You didn't work for it. And then... It explains the inheritance. Now, the second point this morning is seen in the next verses. Jesus' blood covers everything once for all. Jesus' blood covers everything once for all. Look at verses 18 through 22. This is what it would have been like to be under the law, okay? Verses 18 through 22 is what it would have been like to be under the law, under the old covenant. It says this in verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So they're saying this blood idea, the blood of Jesus, the old covenant was inaugurated with blood, but it wasn't Jesus' blood. Let's figure out what happened there. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, so God gives the law to Moses, Moses is declaring it to the people, 
uh, it says that uh, Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and he sprinkled the blood on the book itself. He sprinkled it on all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So there's blood at this covenant. This is the blood of the commandment that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he is sprinkling the blood onto the people. So imagine, he comes in and he has blood. And he's going to sprinkle it onto the book, right? The book. So let's pray for a second and help Jesus, ask Jesus to help us understand this. Lord, help us to understand what we're seeing right here. Calm our spirits, focus our minds and hearts to see what's going on in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So imagine I come in with a big vat of blood and I say, I sprinkle it on the book. That might be a little weird, right? And then I take it and I'm walking through the aisles. Sprinkle it on y'all. Sprinkle it on you. Sprinkle it over here on you. I sprinkle it on you. I sprinkle it on y'all. What would that look like? And it says not just the people, but then the tent. See, I look around. Sprinkle it up there. Sprinkle it over here. The vessels of worship. I turn around. I throw blood on the keyboard. I throw blood on the drums and guitars. Blood everywhere. What's that look like? Some of y'all are wearing white today. You'd be thinking, oh, chose a bad day to do that, right? Sprinkling blood on everything. What would it smell like? The blood of the covenant. I'd imagine if you were in that setting, you would have said something along the lines of, I think this blood is important, right? I think you would have said something along the lines of, Without this blood, there's no remission for sins. Without this blood, there's no forgiveness of our sins. And you would have learned at an early age in the Old Covenant, blood is really, really important. So here, as we learn about the New Covenant, he uses a last will and testament to help us understand the New Covenant, but he also uses the Old Covenant to help us understand the New Covenant. Look at verses 23. So if the, new co- the Old Covenant is you're under the law, then the New Covenant is what it looks like to be freed from the law. Look at verses 23 through 26. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. So there's something temporal and earthly that's being purified, but it's a type of something greater, particularly heaven. The temple, the tabernacle, was a type of heaven. For Christ has entered not into holy places with hands, which are copies of the truer things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin for the sacrifice, by the sacrifice of himself. So the old covenant was inaugurated with the blood of bulls and goats, but the new covenant was inaugurated with a better blood, with the blood of of Jesus. Moses purified the earthly copy of heaven, but Jesus purified heaven, which really leads to the question, why did heaven need to be purified? And the answer is us. Our sin, it's found in verse 24. On our behalf, heaven needed to be purified from sin 
and the blood of goats and the blood of bulls was wildly insufficient. In the tabernacle, God was coming down to be with the people. Now he's taking all the people and bringing them to himself. So in that sense, heaven had to be made clean, and it could only be made clean through the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus can bring us into the joy of our master and our eternal inheritance. On this earth, there's this beginning thing that happens in the new covenant inside of each of us. Like it, with you today, there's something happening inside of you that you did not cause to happen on your own. There's a desire for the Lord that is designed to grow eternally. We go back to the new covenant details that are inaugurated through the blood of Jesus. Look at Hebrews 8, 10 through 12. It says this. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Even today, there's something that happens inside of us. The law is written on our minds and our hearts, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the blood of Jesus is powerful, and it, is, it inaugurates a new covenant, and then God sends the Holy Spirit inside of us, and rather than the law being outside of us, the law is now in us on our hearts and on our minds. Our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh that now overflow with love toward God and Christ and compel us toward him and away from our sins and away from our wickedness and away from our fleshliness. If you have anything inside of you that says, I'm gonna move away from my wickedness and I'm gonna move toward God. If there's anything inside of you that says, I'm gonna not give way to the solicitations of the flesh, but I am going to honor the Lord by moving in obedience and faith, you didn't muster that on your own. It is the blood of Jesus that accomplished that for you. It is the blood of Jesus that can bring you near to the Lord that replaces your heart and makes it to where from inside of you, as it says in Romans 5, when you share the gospel with someone, it's like their hearts are on your team because they know inside there's conviction about what they should not do and what they should do because of who Jesus is. It says that through the blood of Jesus, God is merciful toward our iniquities. What that means is that the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because it suppresses the truth. So in our iniquities, we deserve the wrath of God, but what we get instead is an eternal inheritance. I think if we just spent some time this week trying to grasp that we deserve God's wrath, but instead we got an inheritance that is imperishable and unending and cannot rust and cannot be stolen, that would change us in crazy ways. We deserved wrath. We got an eternal inheritance. He, just, he is merciful toward our iniquities. He does not give us what we actually deserve because Jesus took that upon himself. Through the blood of Jesus, it says God will remember our sins no more. We don't even know what that means. Like, we can try as a group to not remember things. I'm gonna try to forget that. But it says that the blood of Jesus is so powerful that God will remember our sins no more. The first covenant failed because of us, and the first covenant failed because of our sin. The second covenant does not fail because Jesus' blood, Jesus blood brings both forgiveness and transformation. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, and you are legally counted as righteous, but then he also transforms us through our hearts and through our minds. The way you think profoundly impacts your worship and the way that you live. The second covenant cannot fail. This non-negotiable, final, new covenant cannot fail because Jesus' blood brings both forgiveness and transformation. The perfect blood of Jesus wipes out of the remembrance 
our sins with God. Our last point this morning is Jesus will come back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus comes back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's not coming back to deal with sin. He's dealt with sin. Judgment is coming, but when Jesus comes back, he's coming back, it says, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so we're going to take the supper, but don't, not everyone has to move quite yet. Take the supper out, and before we take it, I want to make you hold on to it for a minute. I want to create a little bit of this, this eager waiting now, notice it doesn't say anxious waiting. That's a very different thing. It says he comes back for those who are eagerly waiting for him. So you can, you can take the, the little wafer out of the bottom of your plastic chalice. You can open the top. And this is where we're going to talk about our application for the morning. How do we eagerly await for Jesus? What does it look like to eagerly await for Jesus? Number one, I would encourage you to draw closer to God. Do you feel close to God? I mean, in light of whatever, everything we've talked about that Jesus has done to bring us near to, to, to the Lord, to give us full access to God, do you feel close to God? I use the example of books as old friends. Like, I feel like I knew those authors because I spent time with them. Guys, we have access by the blood of Jesus to the author of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So draw closer to God. Consider all that Christ has done to bring us near to him. He doesn't have to feel distant all the time. In light of what he's done, there are some things that we can do to draw near to God. He invites us into fellowship with him through the blood of Jesus. The second application point is promote eagerness. Promote eagerness in your marriage and with your family. Promote eagerness. There's something about Sabbath that promotes eagerness. See, God has called us to a life of work with seasons of rest. Some of y'all thought it was the other way around and you're always disappointed. You thought you were called to lives of rest with little seasons of work and that's not what we're called to. We have life of work with seasons of rest and so we trust that we can work for six days. We trust God for seven days of provision in those six days work. And so... We're promoting eagerness through the Sabbath because that rest that we have makes us anticipate an eternal rest that we have as part of our eternal inheritance. The Word of God promotes eagerness, reading through the Word of God. We read things and we see promises and we lay hold of those by God's goodness and we anticipate him coming back. Prayer promotes eagerness, weekly worship gatherings. Hebrews says, do not neglect to meet together. Make this a priority. That's, that's how, when he comes back, he expects people to be eagerly waiting. This is part of it. And then taking the supper is part of eagerly waiting. Jesus says the next time he takes the supper will be when he takes it again with us. So the last time he took it was with his disciples. He says, I'm not taking it again until I take it with you when I come back. The third encouragement and application is keep waiting. Just keep waiting. Don't bail out. Don't give up. Persevere, run the race, lay hold of what's in front of you. Do all your work under the Lord. Keep waiting and don't give up. And finally, cover everything in the blood of Jesus. Cover your marriage in the blood of Jesus. Cover your children in the blood of Jesus. What does that mean? It means that you have no idea what a day holds. You have no idea what the trials are. 
and you cover your family in the blood of Jesus, meaning you are telling them, by Jesus' blood, we have access to God, and he will help you in this. He gives us wisdom. He gives us insight. He gives us help. When your children are going through something, don't try to be God for God. Point them to God and say, ask him for help and see what happens. Ask him for insight and see what happens. Cover your marriage in the blood of Jesus. Cover your children in the blood of Jesus. Cover your finances, your trials, your struggles, your conversations, your friendships in the blood of Jesus. Our hope as we take this this morning is that indeed when Jesus comes back, he will find us eagerly waiting. Take and eat. Take and drink. Let's continue in worship.